Father, we want to see Jesus high and lifted up this morning. Open our ears, open our eyes to see Jesus clearly and to hear your voice in Jesus' name. Amen. When you set out on a journey, there are a few things that you need to know. You need to know where you're going. You need to know why you're going there. You need to know how you're going to get there. You need direction. You need motivation. You even need a guide of some sort. Sometimes we even need some encouragement along the way. Every year, sometime during the year, my family will pile all of us into our van and we will set out on that 16-hour journey that it takes to get from Charlotte to Chicago. And as it always happens, somewhere in the the backwoods of, of Kentucky or maybe the flat plains of Indiana, we realize we don't really want to be in the van anymore. We're we're tired, we're bored, and we realize we're only about halfway there. And, And the kids are bored, and the kids are starting to fight. Inevitably, they have to use the bathroom, and there's not a rest stop around for miles, as it always happens. Oh, by the way, did I mention there's five kids in the tiny van? Just about the time that we think we can't endure this trip much longer, Laura and I, inevitably, we look at each other and we say, is this worth it? Is it really worth it? And of course, the answer is always yes, because we look forward to being in Chicago where we get to see some very dear friends and we get to, to, to visit family. And there's always that time when we see the, that kind of massive Chicago skyline arise just over the horizon when we remember, all right, we've made it this far and it gives us strength to finish the journey. Well, the journey of the Christian life is somewhat similar. Spiritually, we start out on the journey and we leave all the things of the world behind. We leave behind all the sinful ways of thinking, being, and acting, and we begin to follow Christ in in hope and in confidence that we'll receive the promised eternal life. But anyone who has been following Jesus for any length of time knows that inevitably, those trials will come that are going to try to coerce us back into old habits and old desires and old sinful ways of of living. We know that somewhere along along the way, the drudgery and difficulties of life are just going to come in and they're going to bring all the discouragements and all the disappointments and it's going to cause us to doubt whether or not this journey is actually worth it. It's going to cause us to doubt whether or not we're ever going to actually reach that destination. It may even cause us to doubt what we believe about God. Is he real? If he is, is he good? Is he trustworthy? Friends, when those moments arise, and believe me, they will arise, we need encouragement. And encouragement along the way is both a good and right thing. In fact, I believe it's also a scriptural thing. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see the scene in which Israel is attacked by the Philistines. And during the attack, God supernaturally intervenes and allows Israel to defeat their enemy. Well, then the prophet Samuel, he takes a large stone and he sets it up as a monument, which is a tangible reminder of God's power and protection. Samuel names the stone Ebenezer, which means stone of help. And he says, thus far the Lord has been our help. The Lord has brought us this far and he gave Israel encouragement. In our life of faith, I believe we also need Ebenezer's. You know how the song goes. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thine help I've come. 
and I know by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. We're actually going to sing that today during communion. But it's a, it's a good reminder to us that God is with us, that God is always guiding us, and that it is only by his help and by his grace and by his good pleasure that we will be brought into that glorious home that he has gone ahead of us to prepare for us. We need these Ebenezers because, let's face it, all too often, the stuff of life distracts us by clouding our vision And it comes in and it makes us deaf to the voice of the one who is guiding us. So friends, this morning, we're going to look at the transfiguration of Christ. That moment in which we see the glory of the Son of God break through. Now, I believe that the transfiguration is an Ebenezer moment. I believe that it's a gift of encouragement to Jesus' disciples, that it's been an encouragement to the church throughout the ages, and it's an encouragement for us this morning. So if you have your Bibles, let me go ahead and invite you to turn to Mark chapter 9. It's going to be, we're going to be in verses 2 through 9. And while you're turning to Mark chapter 9, let me, let me say this. The reason I believe that the transfiguration is an Ebenezer is because historically the event occurs just a short time, maybe even just weeks, before Jesus goes to Jerusalem and is crucified. And in the middle of the fear and of the confusion and of the trauma that the disciples will need to look back and remember, oh right, we have seen the glory of the Son of God and we have heard his voice. I also believe that that's the same hope that we need this morning. Especially since this coming Wednesday, we're going to enter into the season of Lent. And we'll enter into a season in which we're going to be directed to be honest about the sins in our lives, about the things that distract us from following closely to Christ. We'll be encouraged to confess our sins and our weaknesses. We're going to be encouraged to repent so that we can lay down all of those things that burden us in our lives so that we can run freely into the glory of Easter that lies ahead of us. But in order to do that, I believe we're going to need two things. And I believe that these are two things that are held out for us in the event of the transfiguration. We need the vision and the voice. We need to see a vision of who Jesus is, clearly. And we need to hear the voice of God. On our journey, we need to see clearly who Jesus is, and we need to have our ears always open to the voice of the one guiding us on our journey. So if you have your Bibles, read with me. Verse 2. Mark chapter 9. Starts out, it says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Let's let's, let's stop there. Mark tells that this event takes place after six days. Okay? Six days after what? Well, let's look at the context here. Remember, context is always key whenever we open up our scriptures. Mark wants to let us know that this event is the result of a prior event. Looking back into chapter 8, if you want to flip back a page, verse 27, we start seeing some things unfold. Jesus asks his disciples in chapter 8, verse 27, he says, hey, who do people say that I am? And his disciples answer, well, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, Then Jesus asks one of the most pointed questions in all of Scripture. He says, 
Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Dwell on that for just a second. Jesus asks point blank, who do you say that I am? I hope you feel the gravity of that question because this is not just you and I hanging out at a coffee shop having coffee and sharing some opinions about what we think of Jesus. This is Jesus himself pointedly asking, who do you say that I am? It's a, it's a decisive moment. It's a moment for honesty and it's a moment for clarity. Peter answers, you are the Christ. He says, you're the Messiah. You're, the, you're God's promised coming anointed one. Well, after Peter makes that confession... Jesus, in verse 31, says, or he begins to teach them that this Christ, this Messiah, this Son of Man, must suffer, be rejected, be killed, and rise again after three days. Gotta love Peter, because immediately he rebukes Jesus. Let me think about that. Here's Peter rebuking Jesus. But think about it. Peter had just confessed his allegiance And Jesus, whom he believes to be the Messiah, is telling him he's going to suffer? Hold hold up. Messiahs don't suffer. Messiahs cause their enemies to suffer. Messiahs put their enemies in subjection to them. Messiahs aren't killed. They conquer. And what in the world do you mean about this whole rising from the dead thing? People don't rise from the dead. See, Peter had just confessed Jesus as the Christ, and now Jesus is telling Peter that everything he believes about Messiahs is wrong. Moreover, Jesus then ups the ante because that's what Jesus does. He begins to teach that not only will he suffer and die, but that anybody who truly wants to follow Jesus must also follow Jesus on the way of suffering. They must take up their cross. They must lose their life for his sake, if they're going to find it. Is that what you signed up for when you started out on this journey? To make matters even weirder, he then begins to explain that those who follow him in this way will not be put to shame when, the, when he comes again in the glory of the Father with, with, angels, with all the angels around him. And then he says that there are some at that moment standing around who will not see death until they see this very glory. That's what gives rise to the transfiguration. So it's after all of that, six days after all of that, that Jesus leads them up to the mountain. Now, six days is is also a very symbolic reference. It's It's a reference to the six days that Moses was on Mount Sinai before God gave him the covenant law. Uh, and in fact, let me say this, that in this particular passage, there's a lot of symbolism here. This, is, this passage is thick with symbolism, and we're not going to be able to get into all of it. But six days is a reference back to Exodus 24. However, I, there, there's something else I think going on. Jesus has just blown the disciples' minds about what they, how they understand his mission. And I think that Jesus just, is just kind of letting that sink in for a minute. He's letting him process, just letting him sit with with everything he's just said. And then after six days, Jesus leads them up to a mountain. Don't miss the fact that even in the midst of all of this confusion, it is still Jesus that's leading them. Mountains are very symbolic as well. In scripture, mountains are places where people meet with God. Because of their height, mountains are believed to be places where earth is closest to heaven. But the, things about, the thing about mountains is they're places of clarity. 
They're places of clarity. Those of you who are hikers, you know this well. On a mountain, you see the world from a very different perspective. On a mountain, you have a, a broader view of what's going on in the world, and it helps you to see things more clearly and differently. On a mountain, you're also away from the normal distractions of life. Your cell phones usually don't have very good reception there. And you're away from your normal responsibilities and and mountains create a space away from life and that's a very good thing for us. If I may, let me say this. One of the reasons why we don't pray And I think one of the greatest reasons why we don't grow in our walk with the Lord and one of the reasons why we get so frustrated that we're not further along in the journey with Christ than we are is because I don't believe that we prioritize time away with the Lord in the way that we should. You see, Jesus got away from the crowds often to pray. And if we want to grow in our our life of prayer, we need to prioritize getting away from the distractions of life. Now, this doesn't mean we have to travel to Asheville every day, although that would be awesome, But it does mean that we need to stop letting the world set the agenda for our daily lives. The world is never going to prioritize a distraction-free time with the Lord for us. In fact, it's only going to continue to add more and more things in our daily life that will distract us from God. I believe that the transfiguration could have never happened in the middle of daily life. And if it had, I believe the disciples would have been too busy looking at their cell phones to have seen it. See what I did there? (laughs) So Jesus leads them up a mountain and he does so so that he can reveal himself to them. So let's continue. It continues on. It says, and he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Uh, Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So one moment, we see normal everyday Jesus, right? And then the next moment, it's like the curtain separating heaven and earth is pulled back, and there's this dazzling light. And the the description of Jesus' clothes particularly tells us that this light is not coming from the outside. It's something shining from inside out. It's something that is already a reality for Jesus, Uh, This light was something he already possessed. And in that moment, Jesus lets his disciples see a vision of a reality beyond what they would normally see. Jesus is revealing something that is true about himself, mainly that in him, the glory of God dwells. The disciple John, who is on the mountain at this moment, will later go on to write in the opening prologue of his gospel, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. You see, in this moment, the disciples and us were given a revelation of who Jesus is, and friends, it's glorious. But there's also something, there's also more going on in this moment. It says that Moses and Elijah appear with him. Moses is the one who on Mount Sinai is given the law and Elijah is the great prophet. Now, most interpretations that you'll read of this, of this passage will say, uh, or at least will want to stress that this shows that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. And that's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. Jesus is the one who fulfills the law, which is something that sinful humans could never do. 
Jesus is the prophesied one that the prophets spoke about who will come and turn the hearts of God's sinful and wayward people back to God. All of this is true. However, I'm not convinced that that is all that Mark is wanting to emphasize at this particular moment. Here's why. In both the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, their accounts of this, of this event read like this. This is what it says. And there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, which is exactly what you would expect it to say. However, in Mark's gospel, read it carefully. Verse 4 says this. And there appeared to him, to them, Elijah with Moses. Friends, let me encourage you that when you read scripture, don't take simple things like word order for granted. I think Mark is wanting to emphasize a very specific theological aspect here. You see, our context begins back in chapter 8, verse, 20, verse 28, with a brief mention about Elijah. Well, then if you read on after the passage in verse 11 of chapter 9, you're going to see that there's an extended discussion about Elijah and whether or not he's going to come back and whether or not Elijah has already returned. So sandwiched in between those two discussions is the transfiguration. Mark, with something as simple as word order, is wanting to emphasize a very important aspect about uh, this event. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, the last book of the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament ends like this. The Lord declares, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Now, even to this day in Judaism, there's hope that one day the Lord will come and will destroy evil and will overturn injustice against his people and he will set all things right. The sign of that day of the Lord is the return of Elijah. Don't forget that Elijah according to the scriptures, didn't die. He was taken up to heaven on a chariot of fire. And so there's a belief that he's going to return. Where does Moses then fit into all of this? Well, don't forget then that Moses was also a great prophet. And in fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 15, Moses is giving a speech to Israel and he says this. He says, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me, from among you. You see, Mark is wanting to show us that in Jesus, not only are all the law and the prophets fulfilled, but that in Jesus, God is doing something new. God's doing something new. The kingdom of God is breaking in. Earth is being confronted with heaven. The long-awaited new creation is becoming a reality in the disciples on the mountain. In that moment, they're getting a foretaste of what is to come. They're getting a foretaste of what's to come. The transfiguration is both a revelation of Jesus' divine identity and a foretaste of the glory of the coming kingdom. It's a true gift to the disciples. Let me stop, though, and, and, and ask this. Why now? Why now? Why at this moment? Again, Context is key. See, prior to this 
uh, Jesus describes his death and the fact that his followers must suffer. In verse nine, immediately after the scene, there's another discussion about Jesus's death and resurrection. In, in Luke's account, in St. Luke's account, in Luke chapter nine, verse 31, Luke actually tells us what Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus about, something that Mark doesn't actually tell us. But in Luke, we're told that Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus about his departure to Jerusalem and all that he will accomplish there. And then as you read on in the Gospels, from this moment on, Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. From this moment on, Jesus and his disciples will begin the journey to the place where Jesus will be arrested, where Jesus will be tortured, and where Jesus will be crucified. His disciples will be scattered, and they will run and hide in fear. In just a few weeks, they will come to a point in their journey when they will look at each other and they will say, is this worth it? Is this really worth it? And so friends, as we go through life and we face trials and we face temptations, maybe things in our life seem to to fall apart. Maybe friends and family leave us because of our devotion to Jesus. Whatever it is, there will come moments in our life when we will stop and say, is this really worth it? The transfiguration is an Ebenezer moment for the disciples and for us to look back on and to find encouragement and to find hope and strength to persevere. St. Paul, in his letter to the Roman church, while he is being persecuted and sitting in a jail cell, he writes this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. St. Paul says, whatever I'm going through right now is not even worthy to be compared for what, with what lies ahead. That's Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Back to Mark, verse 5 through the end of the passage. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And they were coming down the mountain. He charged them not to tell anyone what they had seen until after the Son and Man had risen from the dead. Now, there's a lot here, and for the sake of time, I just want to point out a couple things in the, in the few minutes that we have left. What we see is a, is a cloud overshadow them, which symbolically refers back to Mount Sinai. And from out of that cloud, we hear God's voice. He tells the disciples that Jesus is his beloved son and that they are to listen to him. Now, I said at the beginning of the sermon that what we need on our journey with Jesus is to see Jesus clearly and to have our ears open to the voice of the one who is guiding us. Here we see Jesus. Here we see Jesus. We see that he truly is the Son of God, that he is the Christ, that he is the one in whom the kingdom of God becomes a reality. And we hear a voice 
tells us to listen to him. What does listening look like? What does listening look like? Listening is more than just passively hearing something. To listen means to follow and to obey. It means to trust what you're hearing. See, the voice of God is directing the disciples to trust and to follow Jesus. See, this event is proof that Jesus, or that in Jesus, God is working out his plan for the salvation of the world. Those who listen to Jesus will experience the reality of a world that is saved and set right in their lives. Following Jesus is what listening looks like. But it does come at a price. This is true. Ultimately, that price is paid on the cross and in the, re- and in the resurrection when a new way of life is broken open and is offered for everyone who believes. On the mountain, the disciples saw the glory of Jesus. The glory doesn't stay around. One moment, there's this dazzling light, and then in the next moment, all the glory is gone, and Mark tells us that they saw no one but Jesus. Jesus leads them down the mountain. He leads them to Jerusalem. Jesus tells them not to tell anyone about the transfiguration until after the resurrection. But friends, after the resurrection occurred, they couldn't keep their mouth shut about it because they knew where they were going and they were excited about it. And they wanted others to come along and experience the glory that lies ahead. Now friends, there are gonna be moments when we wonder whether or not it is all worth it. In those moments, let me encourage you to look up and see only Jesus. In the book of Hebrews, we are reminded that all things are put in subjection to Christ. In chapter 2, verse 8, says this, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of Jesus' control. However, here's the truth, at present... We do not see everything in subjection to him. We don't see everything in subjection to Jesus. But we see Jesus. But we see Jesus. He says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Let me close with this. In John's Gospel, chapter 14, there's this point along their journey to Jerusalem when Jesus reminds his disciples again that he has to go away, that he's about to leave them. But he tells them to take heart because he's going to prepare a place for them so that where he is, they will be with him also. One of the disciples says, but Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way. Then Jesus answered them and he says this, I am the way. Jesus reminds them, I am the way. No one gets to the Father but through me. Jesus is the only way where we can get to where we hope to go. So friends, let me encourage you with this. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Wherever you are in your journey of faith, Keep your eyes on Jesus. 
if you have been traveling this journey of faith for a while, keep your eyes on Jesus and do not let the noise of the world drown out the voice of God in your life. If you're just starting out on this journey, keep your eyes on Jesus and don't let the noise of the world drown out the voice of God in your life. Maybe you're a place, at a place in this journey when you're actually asking, is it all worth it? Is it worth it? Keep your eyes on the transfigured Jesus and don't let the world's noise drown out the voice of God in your life. And maybe you're here this morning and you haven't even started out on this journey yet. To you, let me encourage you, keep your eyes on Jesus. There are many false ways in this world and only Jesus is the way that gets us to the glory of God. Keep your eyes on Jesus and don't let the noise of the world drown out the voice of God in your life. Friends, I believe that that is the message of the transfiguration. Look and see Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus and let his voice, which is the voice of the good shepherd, be your guide. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.